Folding Clothes, the podcast named after what you do while listening to podcasts. We're jumping right back into our topic from last time, picking up right where we left off. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, go back and listen to it. We'll wait for you to get back. So I think Megan's topic segues well into some of the things I've done a little research on. The statistics I found about transgender people and suicide was that the uh, National LGBT Task Force found 41% of people who identified as transgender as having attempted suicide, which I feel like is alarmingly high. And I'm sure there's more research to be done on this as well. But I think that these suicide rates are high all throughout the LGBTQ spectrum in Utah. I've also done some research on several transgender people in the community in Utah. In news recently is Chris, who uses pronouns they, them. Uh, They've been in the news recently because they're trying to get a top surgery, but the church does not approve and they attend BYU and it is against the honor code. And so they've been having difficulty with that and have finally decided just to get the top surgery anyway. And I know Maddie is friends with Chris. Yeah. So what I've, from what I've heard, the top surgery happened earlier, I think this week. I can't remember the exact date, but it went really well. The recovery is going fairly decently, which is great. From what I have seen, their bishop has become more accepting and a little bit more understanding and might not pursue the excommunication route or disciplinary council route that was expected before. And of course, a lot of this is just to be seen, but everything is going well, or at least well enough. That is good to hear. I had a great interview with Dante, and we're going to provide a couple clips to share with you guys. Dante, could you just give the audience a introduction of yourself to help them understand you a little more? Cool. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have been for most of my life. I served a two-year mission um, on the East Coast of the United States. I am asexual, and that comes with its own challenges. And I keep that private Um, Not because I am afraid of what church members might do, but because that's just not something I want to talk about. Do you think that your sexual identity has affected the way that you view church policy or? Um, I haven't considered that very deeply in my life because I keep my sexuality private and because I don't view it as a very serious part of my identity. How are people of the first presidency appointed? In the church, the highest governing body is the first presidency, and that's made up of the president or or the prophet of the church, and then he has usually two counselors. Um, And as far as that goes, if a counselor, um, a first or second counselor in the first presidency passes away, then the president would select another one, most usually from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, the governing body right beneath the first presidency. If the president or prophet of the church passes away, then the first presidency is temporarily dissolved and the Quorum of the Twelve runs the church for a temporary period. And from that point on, the president is the senior a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And that seniority is determined by the length of time within the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, how long they've been a member of that quorum, not by like their age. Very good. Thank you. I feel like I understand a lot more now. So how do changes in policy occur in the church? 
Um, so broadly, something that makes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints unique is the belief in continuing revelation from God or heaven or the Most High. And it is by that belief that large-scale policies are enacted. On a small scale, though, policy is delegated to whatever sector that policy belongs to. For instance, the Sunday School Presidency will make policy decisions about the Sunday School and the curriculum of the Sunday School. The Sunday School Presidency, they will try to make determinations and try to use personal revelation, feelings of the Holy Ghost, or however you would like to phrase that, to make their decisions. And that applies also to higher levels of church policy. So the Quorum of the Twelve meets very frequently, and in terms of making policy decisions, they will bring issues to the figurative or literal table, and they will prayerfully and seriously and spiritually consider those issues. I believe that church leaders do seek for revelation and spiritual guidance when they're making church policy decisions. I do believe there's an element of just trying to make the right decision, um, and sometimes that obviously doesn't work. There are policies that have historically worked and policies that haven't worked. What I will say to that is I don't believe that God is going to help with every decision that any individual person will make or that any given church leader will make. Um, we're here to learn and progress and improve. And if we're given guidance at every step, then we're not going to progress or improve. Um, but that is the basis of like policy decision. As far as doctrinal decisions go, there have been occasional doctrinal changes, but that is much more rare. Do you feel that each ward is very different? That, for example, in some wards, a gay man would be openly accepted, while in another ward, he could be shunned? I absolutely do believe that every ward is different. I am 24 years old, and I have been in 12 different wards in that time of various cultures. In one part, obviously, because I served a mission, but in another part, just because I have moved around and changed wards in my timeline. But wards come with different cultures and different ideas and different preconceptions based on a number of factors. I mean, I spent time in an English word in Boise where, or an English speaking word, I mean, in Boise where I grew up and that had different ideas than different words. That was a word that was mostly Caucasian, that was broadly speaking politically conservative and skewed older. It was mostly older people. It was kind of a baby boomer sort of word, so to speak. Um, on my mission, I spent time in the Spanish wards and branches. Branches are like smaller congregations than wards. Those were people who were mostly, obviously not mostly Caucasian. They were mostly South American or Latino. They were all Spanish speaking. Uh, maybe half of them um, or a little less were not documented, were not here legally. Their political beliefs and their cultural expectations varied wildly from those in Boise. And then here I am in Logan, Utah in like a young single adult ward. Um, where a lot of the politics can lean a little bit more liberal, or at least a little bit more diverse. So all of these wards come with different cultural expectations and ideas. Um, I have multiple friends who are part of the LGBT community, and a lot of them are part of the church, a lot of them are not part of the church, and some of them were part of the church and are not for obviously a variety of reasons and have different varying and complicated relationships with the church because of their experiences with the church and with their own sexuality. Um, and I have found broadly that there's no simple answer there. There are words that have done right by their LGBTQ members, and there are words that have done wrong by their members. Do you think that it's largely the demographic of people who attend the church that influences the environment, or it's the leadership of the ward that reflects the culture in the ward? I'm going to say again that it depends. I encountered wards where the leadership could be unhealthy to the people around them. Um, but there are also places where it was just a matter of culture. 
um, I did find that a variety of the East Coast wards or branches that I was a part of had extremely varied cultural ideas about like homosexuality or any other part of the LGBT community where some of them had homophobic leanings that came not overtly from the church, but from their own personal cultures, wherever that may be, whether it was New Jersey or, or Mexico or Colombia or wherever it was. What role does gender play in Mormon leadership structure? In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that gender is an eternal and divine part of a person's individual identity. So part of what the church teaches is that gender does make a person different from another person, though it does not make someone unequal from another person. So based on your gender, you will have different expectations and roles to play within the church infrastructure. As a male member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I hold the priesthood and can be expected to serve in a variety of functions. Male church members can serve within the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the 70s as bishops, um, as a mission president, a variety of different functions. But women also have their own functions within the church that are also important and notable leadership roles. Uh, most notably, women have the Relief Society, which is one of the largest um, women's organizations in the world. Um, and then women may also serve in primary, caring for children during church hours, among other things. How does social change influence the church? Broadly, and I'm not throwing shade or anything, I do see a number of religious institutions that are influenced by social developments throughout the rest of the world. And I do believe broadly that's not super the case with, with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church. Um, and I believe that has a lot to do with that belief of governing through modern revelation, through seeking what God's will is. So policy does change and doctrine does periodically change, but it really doesn't have much to do with social pressure, I suppose. And I find that comforting to an extent, because to me, as, as like an active church member who believes in this church, to see my beliefs swayed so seriously by exterior viewpoints, would be a little bit daunting for my beliefs because that would make them seem shaky, changeable, um, and potentially wrong. Yeah, I've heard um, at least an article, a quote in the article, Chris describes it as kind of bishop roulette. Depending on which ward and depending on your bishop, your surgery can be endorsed by the church. And if it is, then it's okay. Um, it's often locally decided um, on a smaller scale. And I thought that that was really interesting considering considering the interviews that I had with Dante where he talked about how each ward is can be very, very different for a lot of different reasons depending on the demographic of the people there or the leadership. Um, so it's interesting that I feel like what Chris describes as Bishop Rilla is very accurate and that depending on your ward, you can have an entirely different experience. I'm glad to hear that their bishop is better and improving and I hope that they continue to heal from the surgery and everything goes smoothly. I think it's a step in a gender-affirming direction, and I think it will help a lot. Gender dysmorphia is a really big issue for transgender people, and it, it is really hard if you feel like you're not in the right body. Um, and so these surgeries can be really life-saving. Um, so I'm glad that Chris was able to get that, um, and that the bishop is is on board, at least somewhat. And then there was also a transgender woman uh, Misty Snow, she ran for office. And I just have a quote from her um, just kind of about this topic. Um, so she was raised in the church, um, but later ended up not attending um, 
due to this issue. So it says, when I was 13, Ellen DeGeneres came out as a lesbian and there was a long speech in my church about how bad of a person she was. That bothered me. So I stopped going. I didn't feel like I belonged anymore. I didn't feel comfortable. So I feel like that shows the other end of the spectrum where there's wards that are just still really not accepting and say stuff like that. Of course, this happened a long time ago, but I still feel like that sentiment is still present. I do have a question. I was doing some research and it said that cosmetic procedures, there's no, like if you wanted to get breast implants or anything, there's no policy on that in the church. However, breast removal would have to be like approved by a bishop or something like that. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, just on that topic, I think that for many church members, there's a huge difference in their minds between breast implants versus breast removal. One would be almost an increase in what many people perceive to be gender, and the other would be a removal of it. And I think for some people, that makes them feel very uncomfortable in the church. And although, of course, stating it the way you did, it really asks the question, like, really, how different are those two things? I mean, in one of one of the things that Chris says in this article is that they wished for breast cancer because then they could just get it removed with no backlash from the church. And I feel like just the idea that that's something that they wish for is really alarming. And I feel like if the culture was better and more affirming for Chris, then it wouldn't have needed to go to that extreme. Absolutely. I find it's interesting too, just how problematized gender might be if you don't want to be the gender you're assigned at birth. Um, especially from Miles's segment, what we saw was how homosexuality and different sexualities, like the root cause of that was pinpointed to be dysmorphic feelings towards your own gender. How does anyone here feel like that plays into the current discussion or non-discussion and non-visibility of transgender folks within the Mormon community now? A quick comment on that. Um, I think it's possible this is just a conjecture, but it's possible that one reason this topic is so avoided is that it can be so easily doctrinally fixed. The only difference would be answering the question, does God allow his children to be born in different gendered bodies than what their spirits are? And if the answer to that is yes, then this whole topic is no longer in contrast to the doctrine. If it's no, then the question comes, why? Like, if God gives all other sorts of issues on earth from, you know, being born with both genitalia, like why couldn't he give the trial of being born in the wrong gendered body? But I think beyond that, many people use the term transgender not just to refer to changing from male to female and vice versa. It's also to escape the binary, which is a whole nother topic for LDS people. Well, like Becca said in their interview... Like they just, there's no place in the church hierarchy for non-gender conforming people because the roles are assigned strictly by gender. And so people who don't conform to either gender don't have a place in that hierarchy, which I feel like would make them feel very excluded. And I think that by and large, most people who have not met someone who is non-binary in gender have no clue about the difficulty of this. And Often, even I found myself as I've never really been very close to anyone who identifies as non-binary. I've found myself thinking like, is that even a real thing? You know, and I think that goes to show my ignorance and shows that like this huge amount of 
information that we're missing on this topic. And these people are being completely ignored. And like you mentioned, this is a non-discussion that's happening in the church. This is nothing's being talked about for this. And these people aren't being given a voice. And I think many members of the church would rather just force these people to decide if they're male or female. And even more so, force them to be the gender that they were assigned at birth. But it's a real thing. Like, I would ask all of our listeners to imagine quickly, what if you were born into an opposite gendered body and then didn't feel right about that and felt the way that you do feel right now about your own gender and wanted to change that? What what would be your response to that? And I think most members have never taken that thought experiment. Yeah, I can agree with that, too. Uh If you look at any society in any time period, there have been transgender people. There's no society without transgender people or without people with LGBTQ kind of identities. And some societies traditionally have been more accepting that there's this idea of a third gender or somebody who is born as a man but decides to fulfill kind of the life roles of a woman or vice versa. And those people are given different pronouns. I've heard personally that there was at least one Native American tribe that considered people who were transgender to be double spirits or something like that. Oh, two-spirit? Thank you. In the sense that they are familiar with both the male and the female aspects of these personality traits. So that would apply to what you were talking about. Um, And then my last kind of story person example um, is of Ari who was born male and then transitioned to female. Um, And they went to Thailand for a sex reassignment surgery. And her family's hopeful that because of the sex reassignment that she can be allowed to maybe marry in the temple to a man. And they believe that it goes along with the church family proclamation because it would be a man and a woman. And I'm wondering, Miles and Maddie's thoughts on this, if how you think the church will view this. Along with that, I'd like to just mention that a lot of people turn to the proclamation to the family as their source of explanation. But I would just like to mention, if you refer the family, a proclamation to the world, to someone who is part of the LGBT community, there are no answers there. All it is is statements of what the church believes to be true. There are no explanations of why gender is eternally significant and why there's only men and women and why marriage can only be between a a man and a woman. There's no explanations beyond that. And I think um, members need to be particularly sensitive of that and see that distributing that document has no effect on helping people feel more comforted. I've actually read a story, like a first-hand account, from someone who was transgender and was able to marry in the temple. I don't know if you came across that at all. And I haven't read it in a while, so I'm just going to do my best to remember the important details. But this person, I believe it was male to female, believes that they were born intersex. So they had both male and female biological genitalia and um, believes that their female parts were taken out at a very young age without their knowledge or consent and that they were just raised as male, but that is not how they felt. And so they were able to transition. They fell in love with someone from their ward and they got permission from higher up in the church to go ahead and marry in the temple. And this is like a huge 
exception to policy, and I think it happened about 30, 40 years ago. So it shows that there's so much we don't know, and like not everything is set in stone, and there could be so many more answers that are out there for us, but we haven't gotten them yet, or we haven't asked for them yet. If you like the material that we make, consider sharing this podcast with a friend today and following us at folding underscore clothes on Twitter. Now let's hear from Maddie about bisexuality in the church and middle way Mormonism. Here's an interview I conducted with JD, my new friend. So if you're okay with it, go ahead and describe your relationship with the LDS Church. Yeah, so I obviously am from a Mormon background. I have been part of the LDS Church my whole life. I'm like from pioneer families all the way back, so it's pretty intense. Currently, and over the past few years, I haven't really been active in the church. Part of it, it's almost like apathy. It's not that I dislike the church, it's just that I'm not putting the time into it. But it's obviously an interesting situation being someone that's a you know part of the LGBTQ community and being a part of the church. Even though I know a lot of people really resent the church right now that are part of this community that used to be LDS, I am not one of those people. I think the church is great, even if I'm not a part of it right now. Do you feel like stepping away from the church has improved your relationship with the gospel and or the church? Um, I think it's a little bit different. I think that when I was in the thick of it, I was very much... And it's more because of my family dynamic and they weren't trying to make me feel this way, but a lot more kind of shame for what I am just because it's just not typical, uh, especially in the culture of Utah. I was constantly fighting back, but once I was at college, it kind of made me a little bit more understanding of some stuff, taking it from an outside perspective instead of someone that's in the thick of it, if that makes any sense. I don't know if it improved it necessarily, but it definitely gave me a whole nother perspective on it for sure. Growing up, did you hear anyone at church ever even mention bisexuality? No. I mean, the whole LGBTQ group is very much, well, especially when we were younger, at least from my experience, is very much taboo. It's just no one talked about it. Um, like, it would be slightly mentioned, but it really wasn't talked about. And not even just in church, but I think bisexuality is something that people just don't always feel comfortable talking about because they don't feel like you have a place with people that are all the way gay and people that are all the way straight. When did you begin to realize your sexuality and what helped you in accepting it? So I started to really like notice things for sure when I was a sophomore in high school. So about five years ago. And looking back, I saw other things when I was like a, a younger kid, just little things that kind of tipped me off that I might not have been straight. By senior year, I wasn't in denial anymore. But it wasn't until last year that I um, fully came to terms with it and starting acting on it. Yeah, it was. I finally started accepting myself because I had spent. I realized that I had spent so much time worrying about what people thought about me. I'm a hyper conscientious person and very anxious about what my persona appears to be to everyone else. And but after freshman year of college and wasting so much energy trying to please everyone and trying to pretend to still be quote unquote good, I was kind of just done with it. I mean, it was like, this is exhausting for me. 
And at that time, I'm like, it's 2018. And honestly, this shouldn't be as big of an issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started to just kind of be like, this is who I am. And, and people were unexpectedly nice about it. That's great. Which was good. And that, that helped even more, me accepting it. So, In your life, have you felt pressure to conform to Mormon standards? And um, what about pressures to conform to queer culture? Did these ever compete for you in your life? Just being in a family with mine and then also just being in an environment that we have here um, in Utah. Because being LDS is the norm, everyone wants to still, if you are, at least people want to pretend that they are a lot of the time, especially in high school. When you come to college, it's a different story, obviously, because people don't feel that burden of their parents breathing down their necks and stuff. And, And especially because, I mean, you go from... Where I lived, it was about, I think it was 92% of the city was LDS. And here at Utah State, it's about 50-50. So if, obviously it's a different thing here. But there's still the mentality that you should hide your feelings and, I mean, obviously not act on them from the LDS culture. And then from queer culture, it, honestly, it's kind of interesting. Ever since I've come out, the only people that have been mean to me are people part of the LGBTQ community. Really? Because they are angry at me for not shunning the church completely and they see me as like a complete traitor so I've had people block me and call me out and stuff online and it's been an interesting experience because they want me to leave everything behind and I'm not about that so there's been that kind of conflict and it's just it really is just an interesting dynamic that exists the way that it does everyone's expecting you to pick and that's the thing that's been the hardest for me is I still love the church And in theory, I'd love to still be a part of it. But then I also have my sexuality, which is obviously in conflict. And so I'm still in this little limbo stage where I have to pick one and I'm still working through that. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about for the podcast is the phenomenon called middle way Mormonism, where more people are choosing to reject things and hold on to things. And I don't want to like say that's what you're doing, but it's just there's a lot of compromises that they're making in their faith and just the pressures between the church and the queer community, it's probably overwhelming. What would you like church members to know about being bisexual? And what would you like them to know about the queer community? Um, well, first off, I mean, obviously, there's still taboo about bisexual people because a lot of people think you're faking it because bi curiosity has definitely gained a lot of momentum in the past decade. So people are trying things out. And because so many people do that and then choose and then they say, oh, I was straight the whole time. I was just experimenting. A lot of people, at least for me, have just been like, are you sure? Like, you sure this isn't just a phase? And I get where they're coming from, for sure. But people assume, and this isn't just a bisexual thing. I think it's just a part of the uh, LGBTQ community, is that we are so much more sexual and promiscuous than straight people are, which isn't true. My joke is that, at least with gay and bisexual males, I mean, we know that males have a higher sex drive than females do. And I'm like, in straight couples, the females can calm them down. But when it's just guys, we're all like, woo, (laughs) fun all the time. But, I mean, we're not inherently like these evil tempters that are trying to seduce you and bring you away from the church. Because I think a lot of people are still afraid of that, which I think is kind of dumb. But people in the church, I think they should know that. I don't think, I think a lot of them still think that we're all just delusional, that it's not something biological. And this isn't just in the church, but this is in throughout the world, but especially in highly religious cultures, that this is just something that we're choosing. The gay lifestyle is a phrase that you hear a lot. I mean, We don't know if it's all nature or if it's all nurture. I firmly believe it's a combination of both. I just want people to know that it's not just like, I'm just choosing to be in direct conflict with the church. There's reasoning behind this and there's something innate in me that is creating a little bit of conflict. 
So did you ever have any church leaders that made you feel more accepted or comfortable, or did it kind of all just go the other way? With negative experiences, I'm very good at, well, I mean, this is so sad, but when, when you have a secret, you become good at lying. And so when I was a kid, even though people assumed it about me, I knew how to like play it off, like seem straight or to set a precedence that no one should ask. So people would feel bad for assuming, which is kind of evil. But I just didn't want I didn't want people to come at me and I didn't want that to come out in high school or anything like that. Because if you're part of this community, you're going to be ostracized to some extent because it's not the norm. That's just kind of how we do things in societies that when something's not the norm, we kind of push them to the side or we hold them at arm's length. I definitely had church leaders that weren't necessarily mean, but they were very wary. But when I came out... People were so much nicer than I expected. Like bishops I talked to and stuff like that have been so nice and trying to be as understanding as possible. And, and I get that they're really confused because obviously they're not experiencing this, so they don't really completely understand. And I mean, you hear those nightmare stories of these bishops that are just saying the dumbest things. And luckily I haven't been in that situation. But for the most part, the people that have reached out to me the most after I've come out have been church members. And I think that's one of the reasons why I still have such a good relationship with the church. What do you think of those who choose to stay in the face of possible persecution? And what do you think of those who leave? Um, I completely understand people on both sides of the line, for sure. I'm definitely, I try, I don't agree with everything that people do. I'm mean, not just in this, but in life. And I, but I always try to see people's perspective. People that choose to stay, I think they're incredibly brave and they clearly know what they want. They want to, I mean, they believe in the gospel and they want to still continue to be a part of this church. And if that's what, I mean, that's what they want, then I applaud them for that. For people that choose to leave, I also get that because it's hard. It's really hard to try to stay in the church and it's hard to want to stay in the church because, I mean, like I said before, people are, people don't know what is up. A lot of people are judgy, but a lot of people aren't trying to judge. And so people are nervous to even be around you. It's just hard. It can be hard to find friends and find a place. And obviously, like, if you're acting on it, you can't have a temple recommend and you can't have a calling and take the sacrament and stuff. So I get why it's so hard for people to stay in the church. I think a lot of people are just waiting for the church to conform to this. And I don't really think it's going to happen. I think that's going to make it even harder, if that is the case, for people to want to stay in the church because they don't really have hope other than going, you know, completely abstinent and shunning all of that. So I don't blame people for their decisions at all, and I'm not judging them off of them. So we're stuck in a really crappy situation, and right now there doesn't appear to be a solution. I think if you're doing what's making you comfortable then I'll applaud you for that. Just to finish up, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you would just like to comment on real quick? I think one of the driving factors for this whole conversation, not like between you and me, but just in general and the community and stuff like that, is people really are, like I said a minute ago, people are waiting for the church to change. I think people think there's a lot more influence. Social pressure has more of an influence on the first presidency than it does. I don't think it would make any sense for the church to change. I think if you still have a testimony to some extent, hold out for even a little bit more. The biggest thing you have to think about is is how strong your testimony is when it comes to the church. If you don't have a strong enough testimony or if you don't if you don't feel super confident about the church, why on earth would you stay in like when something hard is going to happen, what's going to keep you in the church? And for me, that's very apparent. I I and I really don't care enough right now. At least I don't care enough about learning more and being a part of the church as well as 
my relationship with God, which is a little depressing. But I think, I mean, if your testimony is strong enough, you're going to be able to hold out through this issue. But when it really comes down to it, it's just how much you trust in the Lord, how much you trust that what he's doing is the right stuff. Because we don't know what's going to happen. There's all been so many different changes with President Nelson. And so, I mean, maybe there will be something more inclusive for us. I don't know. I would just say to everyone, just keep an open mind and we'll see what happens. So like I've said before, I am a bi woman and I don't really want the focus of my section to be on myself though. Often I think I divorce my own sexuality from other aspects of my life. So when I think of queer people in the church, I focus really on the others who have suffered far more than I have. My bisexuality means that I can be accepted in the church as long as I adhere to the norms it asks of me or that really the culture asks of me. But there are so many other people that don't fit into those norms whether they want to or not. So I think mostly I just want to come out to provoke people to do more thinking. So I just want to get into talking about what it means to be bi and labeling sexuality. Growing up in a heteronormative world, I always assumed that I was straight because I like boys. It was simple. I didn't know that there were more possibilities than being gay, lesbian, or straight. I was a little naive, but I definitely know I'm not alone in my experience. So I'd like to bring up the point that maybe more people than those who accept it in the church experience bisexuality. They may choose to ignore it, they may not understand it, and they may justify their experiences like I did, but you just got to let people work things out for themselves and you always want people to be comfortable. I've spoken to or heard stories from people who very much identify as straight, even though they experience attraction to people of their own gender. And I accept their label of straight that they give themselves because I think we need to respect everyone and what they're putting out into the world. So one thing to keep in mind is the Kinsey scale. For those who don't know, this was a scale to measure sexual attractions. It was developed by Alfred Kinsey in the first half of the 20th century. A zero is someone who purely experiences only heterosexual attractions. A six is someone who experiences purely homosexual attractions. And in between you have a whole continuum. So really there is a lot of room in the middle where people could choose to identify as bisexual. So I've just been wondering more like why don't more people take this label? As part of my preparation to prepare for this podcast, I read a book titled A Peculiar People, Mormons and Same-Sex Attraction. It was published in the early 90s and was actually more open-minded than I expected. It shared stories from Mormon and Mormon adjacent people who identified as gay or lesbian also family members of such people and professional and ecclesiastical views on the topic. The foreword of the book denoted that stories of bisexuals would be shared, but I found the book almost completely lacking in that sense. Bisexual orientation was mentioned periodically, but it wasn't until nearly the end of the book that anyone who fit that category had their story shared, and even then it was only very briefly. This brought me back to a question that I've had in my head for a very long time. Why don't we talk about bisexual people at church? I can say with certainty that I've never even heard the word bisexual at church. From my interview, neither did JD. Honestly, it seems like any conversation dealing with anything other than heterosexual inclinations focuses on gay men. So why is this? 
Reading the book proved to tell a lot about that time. While the church no longer actively pushes the idea of mixed orientation wedding between a gay and a straight person, such an arrangement was seen like as a literal godsend that would cure homosexual inclinations. It seemed like every story included advice to keep dating people you weren't attracted to in an effort to fix yourself. I got the sense that bisexuality would be an affliction for someone otherwise believed or inclined to be gay, but would be a saving grace for someone who came out as gay. It would be permissible if it saved a gay person from life as an outcast. But even in that sense, the gay part of the person would be talked down or even more likely completely ignored to save face. So as part of my research, I sought out some scholarly articles pertaining to my topics. One I would like to talk about right now examined how young Christian heterosexual cis female college students view and treat bisexual and transgender people. This demographic was chosen because they were most likely to be active participants in religion, but also more likely to be accepting of minorities. The article was first published in 2018 and is titled The Limits of Homonormativity, Constructions of Bisexual and Transgender People in the Post-Gay Area. According to the study, homonormativity is an assimilation tactic used by gays and lesbians to adapt and conform to the standards of a heteronormative society, save heterosexual relationships are replaced with homosexual ones. This has allowed for greater integration into society, but comes at the cost of increased biphobia and transphobia. The authors of the article stated that participants suggested that bisexual and transgender people did not really exist in God's creation. Instead, they suggested that such people were actually unnatural occurrences that emerged from human disobedience and disregard for God's requirements for human morality and salvation. There were a few direct quotes from some of the participants that kind of helped to flesh out some of these claims. One of my favorite quotes comes from a white Catholic girl. She said, people don't think that bisexuality is real. You can't just like everything. You can't have all the ice cream flavors. You have to choose one flavor. So about this, the authors wrote... That's shocking. <laughs> I do like all the ice cream flavors. It was quite the comparison. I'm not sure why she decided to go with that one. I don't really understand it. But what the authors said was telling from this was that the quote does not only delete the potential for bisexual existence, but also relies on assumptions that bisexuality is indulgent, excessive, or a fraught space between two categories, straight and gay, and that people will eventually settle into one of two binary, less excessive, and more respectable options. And then another interviewee responded with, look... I even have gay friends who don't believe in bisexuality. It is just not real. Those people are just figuring out their stuff and they need to figure it out. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure they believe it, but God doesn't work like that. So it appears that the validity of bisexuality in religious settings still has a very long way to go. I've been looking for more bi-visibility in the church the past little while, and I came across Blair Osler. She is this prominent authority figure on all topics LGBTQ plus in the church. She herself is bi, and she has a lot to say, which I really admire. She has a blog, and I just have a few quotes from her that I felt were fitting, so I'll be sharing those throughout the podcast. 
Another figure would be Emma Gee, an athlete at BYU. She has recently come out as bisexual and claims to be the only out athlete at BYU. According to the website College Factual, BYU has over 700 student athletes. But I think even if BYU had only one or 200 athletes, being the only out athlete would be a very challenging and lonely position at a church-owned school. She's shared her story with Outsports.com. A little snippet that I'd like to share from that piece highlights the difficulty of her position. So it reads, Every year of college, I've sat in required bishops interviews where I've been asked why I don't have a boyfriend and why I don't date boys in my student congregation. And every year, for my own protection, I've played along. Oh, I wanted to. I was too busy with cross country. I didn't have time. The truth is, I did have time to date. It's just safer not to. I didn't want to chance being outed or getting kicked out of school for breaking the honor code. Still, the assumptions of straightness is a painful reminder that I am somehow deviating from a correct path, that I am unnatural, and that I don't really belong. That's crazy to not even feel right to date men because she would feel... Like, it would be too dangerous if that came up in any personal situations. For those who don't know, BYU is a church-owned school, and it has a very strict honor code that controls what students can or cannot do, very much adhering to church doctrine, and it really doubles down on a lot of stuff. So any homosexual activity, which is not defined in the honor code, so it could really be anything, is not permissible at the school. So these students have to kind of live in constant fear. Now let's get into conformity. The world is full of stereotypes and many people are fond of saying that stereotypes have to come from somewhere or else they wouldn't be stereotypes, right? Now, I don't think I need to list off all the stereotypes about members of the church or members of the queer community, but it does need to be noted that they can often be contradictory. Mormon teachings say that marriage between a man and a woman in the temple should be the goal for everyone, and it is the accepted and promoted lifestyle. For someone in the queer community, fitting into that mold would be impossible without compromising on key components of themselves. So one interesting and recent example of stereotypes and standards has been brought to my attention following the release of Taylor Swift's music video for her new song, You Need to Calm Down. The song is advertised as an anthem of acceptance of queer people and a clap back at all the haters. I'd like to note that is haters with a Z. As can be expected, some loved it, some hated it. The reasons for these reactions vary, but one article and one Twitter thread with similar points caught my eyes. Both of these call out Taylor for the portrayal of homophobia. This embodiment comes in the form of American rural working class. These people are made to look unkempt, uneducated, and undesirable. About this, Meg Ellison, author of the Twitter thread, says, I've noticed that in queer circles, which have always been biased towards thinness and beauty and youth at any cost, this idea is particularly persistent. We expect people to prove goodness and queerness with skincare, sequins, the right haircut. The cost of this is astronomical. It makes people worry that they aren't gay enough because they don't know how to dress like JVN, that they won't ever pass because they're just poor. Stereotypes often vary from culture to culture, of course. 
standards made by communities vary in the same way. These may change over time, but every community and every culture has problems. For queer communities, bi erasure is one of these problems. I think all of us want to find a place of belonging, but to people in queer circles, that need is often more pressing due to the loss of community that happens when people come out. Erasure can make this especially hard. Here's a quote from Blair Osler that helps to explain this. The constant struggle for a bisexual person, at least in my case, was never feeling like you belong somewhere. I was never gay enough and I was never straight enough. I was just queer enough to feel the social rejection, isolation, and hopelessness that comes with being gay. But at the same time, my attraction to men excluded me from the queer community. It has taken me years to feel comfortable in my identity as a queer woman. The truth is I'm gay, I'm straight, and I'm everything in between. Instead of perceiving myself as not enough of any one identity, I started seeing myself as enough regardless of my identity. So for me, tied up with bi erasure is passing. Like I mentioned before, I can easily pass for a heterosexual woman. Passing has kept me safe from discrimination or harassment based on my sexual orientation. The members of my congregation at church don't shirk from me like they might if they knew the truth. I have benefited from it in certain situations, but I've also been failing myself by not doing more to live authentically. On this topic, Blair Osler has said, Passing privilege is the idea that when people interact with you on a regular basis, they assume you are either heterosexual or homosexual, heterosexual being the more privileged of the two. Passing privilege also comes with erasure. If I pass as straight, then my authentic bisexual experience gets erased. Bi erasure is the neglect, removal, or falsification of the bisexual experience. Bisexuality comes with the trauma of being homosexual with the bonus of being told that because you have heteropassing privilege, your trauma isn't worth it acknowledgement or treatment. To compensate for this, in an effort to be completely honest, some bisexuals become overt about sharing their bisexual orientation. However, this can sometimes come off as being hypersexual. So when it comes to passing, belonging, and everything in between, the relationship between myself and my faith has developed and evolved. Recently, I've seen a rise in articles and posts about something called middle way Mormonism. Broadly, this means accepting some things in the church while rejecting others, but still retaining a position no matter how loosely in the church. This phenomenon tends to be hard to define. Some believe that middle way Mormonism is caused by some sort of catalyst, some change in your life that forces you to reevaluate your position with the church. But this experience doesn't hold true for everyone. Maybe some just kind of drift into it slowly. The Salt Lake Tribune published an article on the increase of millennial Mormons choosing this path. Many young saints are rejecting previous symbols of good standing in the church or of perfect obedience. Instead, religious devotion is no longer dependent on outward demonstrations of supposed faith markers, and increasingly these members choose to focus more on theological issues, social issues, and adhering to what they feel comfortable with. They are defining their own relationship with the church as they seek to define their relationship with with God. One young BYU student quoted in the article shared that she still considers herself a Latter-day Saint and was encouraged when her dad said a person could have a fragile relationship with the church and still have a strong relationship with God. So one of my questions is how big is the category of the middle way? Is it most of us? Is it just a few of us? And how do people who are LGBTQ or are close to that community contribute to and deal with middle way Mormonism? I think one thing that's really interesting about that is that 
JD talked a ton about this kind of stuff in a lot of ways. I think that would pretty well describe a ton of what he was talking about. And I would have to say that I can't imagine middle-way Mormonism without the LGBTQ community playing a part. It should be noted that LGBTQ issues are often a catalyst for changes in religious beliefs. Queer people who choose to maintain a relationship with the church often have to choose a middle way. There are compromises. Trying to belong in two communities that are often opposed means getting creative. And oftentimes, it means making real sacrifices. So once again, I'm going to go back to Blair to share this quote. She says, One of the things I love most about the queer community is that we are writing our own script. The script that was given to us didn't work, so we are inventing something new. We are overcoming fear with self-authorization claiming our identities as moral and worthy. We are transforming ourselves into creators. Before I end, I'd just like to share one final story and then post some questions. So Stacy Harkey of BYU Studio C, comedy fame, spoke at the 2019 Affirmation International Conference. And Affirmation is an organization that seeks to help LGBTQ members associated with the church to feel more accepted and to give them resources that help them through basically through life, through all the trials that they have been given, especially dealing with the church. So Stacy has recently come out and he has started dating someone. And I was just really impressed by his genuineness and his warmth. So he shared that after coming out to himself, he decided to live a lonely celibate life. And it was really taking a toll on him. And it got to the point where something had to give. He comes out to a friend, it feels great. And he goes in prayer to seek more guidance from God. He asks, God whether he should leave the church and the religion that he loves and feel strongly about or stay and be lonely. He told God that he would do whatever was required of him. He describes what followed as being the sweetest experience and describes an overwhelming feeling of peace. It was a feeling that said, I know what you're going through and I love you. Who you are is not a problem. The second thing I realized in that moment is this dilemma of should I stay or should I go was a dilemma I gave myself. No one told me that. And I felt in that moment that I could still stay close to him and live my religion and I could also honor who I was. He's just a really perfect example of kind of this middle way Mormonism that we've been talking about. He loves the religion. He loves God. But there's this part of him that he's not going to compromise on anymore. And so he's choosing to move forward with faith, but he's also going to do what he feels good about. And to him, that is dating another man. There's kind of an interesting analogy between bisexuality and middle way Mormonism, bisexuality and kind of the social consequences around it, where you're bisexual and you can't be interacting with heterosexual circles because they see you as the other. And you can't really be in the queer community because they see you as the other. And bisexuality is kind of this bridging between these two sides or kind of imagined or illusory sides a little bit. And in some ways, middle way Mormonism can be an address to that, saying you thinking that there's this other is just a distinction. It's a categorization. It's something you're making in your mind. We're not necessarily all that different. I would say all members would agree that there is no religion unless there's personal dedication. And there's this weird balance that is taught that you really need to find out things for yourself, but at the same time, you're not allowed to question any of the things that are taught to you. And I think this middle way Mormonism for a lot of people is the solution to that. They see a lot of clarity in many of the topics said, but in the end find their own solutions when the answers aren't enough. 
I think that's interesting. It kind of goes along with what Becca said, which is that she was always taught she can't cherry pick her beliefs and you had to believe everything. So I feel like middle way Mormonism will be a way for people like Becca to still find a place in a church and a community that they grew up in. So here are just my questions to wrap it up, just for our listeners to think about. What kind of changes will arise in middle way Mormonism lead to? More particularly, what changes will happen pertaining to what we are talking about today? What do we do to validate queer people in our lives, both in and outside the church? And most of all, how do we make our spaces safer for everyone? I think it's going to be an individual journey for everyone involved, but at the same time, none of us are really alone. thanks for joining us today if you like this episode at all consider sharing it with one other person who you think would find this interesting if everyone who listened to this shared it with one other person we'd be happy to keep making episodes thanks again to our interviewees and our hosts and thanks for listening